Hi, this is Steve Nerlick, and this is Steve's PhD, Episode 4, The First Hurdle. Hurdles are actually good things. They're not barriers, but place markers that a race organiser has helpfully put in your path to let you know where you have to jump and how high you have to jump if you want to continue the race. Of course, I am using an analogy here, where the race is my PhD, the race organiser is my supervisor, and the first hurdle is the Thesis Proposal Review, or TPR. A TPR is a sort of scary, end-of-year exam kind of thing, requiring you to deliver a 20-minute verbal presentation, followed by a 20-minute grilling, I'm sorry, a question-and-answer session, to see if you've got your story straight. If you do okay at your TPR, you get to carry on with your PhD. If you don't do okay, this trapdoor springs open beneath your feet, and, okay, kidding, but if you don't do okay at your TPR, there is a bit of throat clearing and foot shuffling until someone draws you aside to, you know, discuss your options. In any case, you can probably appreciate that, for a PhD student, there is a tiny bit of stress associated with a TPR. By this stage in the game, you have already told your family, your work colleagues, and perhaps unwisely, you might even have told over 600 podcast listeners that you were doing a PhD. Having raised all this expectation, suddenly you are now rounding the curve and approaching the first hurdle. But look, if universities didn't impose these nightmarish assessment procedures on you, this is a race you would never finish. The most concrete thing that you ever really do in a PhD is to enrol in it. After that, it's a structuralist meandering wander through the academic undergrowth. There's no course material. Indeed, there's no course. You just sort of kick an idea around for three or four years while you read and you write and, you know, cogitate. Without some critical checkpoints, some hurdles, like the TPR, your structuralist meandering wander through the academic undergrowth would be just that. At the start of this year, I put my hand up at our PhD student orientation session to ask what the PhD attrition rate was, where attrition is a nicer sounding word than failure. And apparently the PhD attrition rate is about 20%, although there's an even higher rate for part-time students. And boy, was I thrilled to hear that. I also asked at the PhD orientation session what was the most common reason for PhD attrition, and apparently the most common reason is isolation. This might be partly isolation from family and friends, and also partly isolation from your fellow PhD students, but mostly I think it's isolation from your supervisor. For example, my PhD supervisor has this trick where at the end of a thesis meeting, she'll tell me, look, it's not important. 
but maybe if you could try and pull some of these ideas together in a couple of pages, like an outline. But only if you've got time, it's not that important. So, of course, I turn up to the next meeting with this fully referenced Magna Carta, topped by a one-paragraph abstract and tailed by a strategic plan that sets out all the next steps required to meet my key objectives. I pass this document across the table with a bit of a flourish and sit there projecting smugness as my supervisor reviews it with a lot of serious nods and a gratifying, I can see you put a lot of work into this. Of course, after nearly a year now, I have come to realise that all her PhD students probably deliver work of a similar quality, all of us having succumbed to the challenge inherent in the statement, it's not important if you can't manage it. These academics know how to push your buttons. And holy crap, I've suddenly realised that my freaking TPR is only four weeks away, so I'm going to pick up this dialogue again on the other side. Four weeks later. Oh, well, that wasn't so bad. And what do you know, we landed the Curiosity Mars rover. And what a shame about Neil Armstrong. As it happened, on the day of the thesis proposal review, the TPR, I wasn't the only first-year Australian National University PhD student presenting their TPR, and my supervisor had set the scene by telling me, well, I know you'll give a polished performance. What? How come I have to deliver a polished performance while everyone else just gets to muddle through? How is that fair? Only later did it occur to me that she'd probably said exactly the same thing to everyone else. Anyway, I did the presentation, and I fielded the questions reasonably well, and if the whole thing wasn't polished, at least there might have been the occasional glimmer. And here's the sales pitch that I hit them with. <clears throat> As you know, I am researching STEM education in Australian universities. STEM being science, technology, engineering and mathematics. But remember, this is the 21st century, and these days everyone is pushing their university students to go and study overseas for a semester or more during the course of their degree. And why? Well, everything is getting globalised. It's the Asian century, so it's good for the economy. So just go, OK? And go to Asia if you can. But why would you go if you're a STEM student? That is the question. When you look at the literature promoting study abroad, most of it just says our students need to learn intercultural competency, which sounds like something you could do just as well as a tourist. Ordering food, catching public transport, and making friends teaches you intercultural competency. So, as I have outlined in previous episodes, I'm not trying to encourage more people to study science, but to tell the story of what happens after they do. So, in a similar way, I'm not interested in encouraging STEM students to study overseas. I just want to know what happens when they do. Do they get better jobs than the STEM students who don't go? 
Can someone be a better scientist or an engineer if they can speak Mandarin or catch a train from the middle of Tokyo? And is it possible you actually learn something different about science or engineering or innovation in a way that has nothing to do with intercultural competency but everything to do with curriculum and pedagogy, which is teaching style, sort of. Ask me all these questions in three years, and I reckon I'll be able to answer them. As well as delivering my presentation and fielding the questions, I also submitted a 5,000-word thesis outline, because that's also part of the TPR assessment process, 5,000 words being about 20 pages of guff on what you are going to do for your PhD, how you are going to do it, and what the point of doing it actually is. And with that now behind me, there really is a feeling of having my academic training wheels on. One of the next things I'm going to do is send off part of that 5,000-word document to a journal hoping that they might publish it. I mean, it's got references and stuff, and I have read the darn thing about 30 times over, making amendments each time in the various bars, cafes and restaurants that punctuate the bohemian lifestyle of an astronomy podcasting mature-age part-time PhD student. Another thing I'm going to do is submit an application to the Human Research Ethics Committee so I can get out there and start interviewing students and graduates and their employers. And somewhere between Curiosity Landing and Neil Armstrong passing on, I really did deliver a public lecture at one of Australia's top universities, and I really think I did convince most of the audience that there are things out there that we don't really understand, There are reasons why the future of mankind might benefit from us understanding those things better, and I gave them an outline of how I propose we go about developing that understanding. And they bought it. And so, with this first hurdle jumped, I remain Steve Nerlich, PhD candidate.